John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 815.2S0523, certificate number 26780. Molberry Mania. Here we go around the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush. Here we go around the mulberry bush on a cold and frosty morning. We've done shows on this uh, program about berries. Yeah, the... Uh, the boysenberry. The boysenberry. It's its origins in Southern California and horticulture. And we've done shows uh, about the popularization of flora and fauna uh, as a uh, that uh, that are derived from Shakespeare's plays. Oh yeah, uh, 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 European starling. The starlings became endemic in America after they were introduced by a amateur ornithologist who thought America should have every bird mentioned in Shakespeare. And we've done shows about uh, uh, a kind of collective mania or hysteria uh, around uh, plant life. Oh, fern fever. Fern fever. Wow. I'm really good at omnibus. You are. You, this is, you're amazing. This is my category. We should do it. Do should, some more. Uh, let's see. We've done a show about... Uh, no. Uh, we, we, should know, do, we should do a podcast about omnibus. Oh, interesting. Where we just talk about where maybe, where our, we our, gamify our, it. Our favorite episodes. <laughs> We've never done tulip mania, Dutch tulip no. mania, have we? I th- feel like we were going to, but we did maybe a more interesting speculative bubble, we, didn't we? Did we did we reference it? I feel I, don't know. I feel tulip mania is a thing that's just like a ghost wandering around the halls of this, but I don't remember us doing a show. We did the onion cornering, but that that's a little different. We did do a thing about a speculative bubble. I don't know. But we uh, we today have, as a result of a suggestion from a from a listener, um, the great opportunity to do an episode that encompasses all those very omnibusy qualities: Shakespeare, uh, a mania for a certain kind of plant, and a berry. So it'll be like you turned on those three entries. And synced them up like a Flaming Lips record. That's right. And just ran them all at the same time. Cassette tapes in a parking garage. The, the effect you would get would be the same as the effect of listening to this entry, Mulberry Mania. Although for the purposes of selling advertising, we should probably encourage everyone to go listen to those three episodes because that's three times the listenership 
that one episode will gain That's us. True. Except those are old ones without ads and probably just us talking about how stuff works. Yeah. Oh, Although uh, maybe by the time futurelings are listening to this show, we, we will have perfected dynamic advertising in, in podcasts. And, uh, and they'll be full of Budweiser ads. They'll be full of ads for things from your era. Oh, right. It'll be full of like... Um, ads for some kind of lichen protein paste that you put in your tanks. Yeah, or sucker moisturizer for your, for your dried out uh, tentacles. Flights to Mars. Hmm. All kinds of stuff. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by this show because um, it, it comes from our Patreon which enables us to put on the show even in a time when there is no dynamic advertising in podcasts and most of our ads are still for how stuff works shows which is weird <laughs> Why weird is that to me true? we haven't been on that network in in a year and a half um but our, our patreon has at at in its many tiers a level uh, of donation which entitles you to suggest uh, the topic of a show and yeah, if you're at the uh what is it? The sentient quaking Aspen level? Yeah. The sentient Aspen, uh, or something like that. You can, you, you can suggest a show and, um, and we've done several shows uh, there. We have quite a few, uh, supporters at the quaking Aspen level, and they've suggested many shows. And I think over time at first among the futureling community, there was some resistance or, or suspicion that, that, uh, futurelings, suggesting shows were going to somehow yeah. pollute the natural you don't want to let them drive the bus yeah right you and i have 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 oh it's m- washing bears by the way not oh, truth washing trees we have so much you know so many wonderful ideas ourselves why would we ever need to need to go do the basically targeted advertising of somebody saying why don't you do flame and cheetos or whatever but that hasn't been the case right over t- i think Futurelings know what kind of show would be a good omnibus episode, and then they always give us a list of suggestions, and we pick the one that feels the most akin to our to our uh, our natures. And often it's a it's an interesting nook or cranny. Like I'm a big fan of omnibus when it's just about some historical thing I discovered accidentally. Oh, I'm glad at, you at, like the show and not something. Oh, to hear. huge fan. Uh-huh. Do you listen to it on road trips? L- listen and stuff? to it all the time. Listen to it to go to sleep at night. <laughs> Uh, but you know, there's, there's a kind of historical podcast, which is kind of about the same things that there's been discovery channel specials about and show up in mental floss listicles. Uh And I really like the more organic ones that are just kind of diamonds in the rough, newly discovered, uh, weird cultural stuff that hasn't been harvested too many times. And I feel like the listeners are very good at uncovering weird little niches that they're kind of proud of and that they want to put spotlights on for the first time as opposed to, um, what, what's some historical thing that's been on, you know, molasses flood or, you know, something that's something that's already been on a lot of TV and I've never heard of the molasses flood. Oh, well, we, we, well, I, we should do it then. Yeah, we should, we, we should jettison this episode. Let's and do get it started. right now. Okay. All right. There's a molasses flood, right? Right. How uh, did all the molasses get into one location? Uh, I think it was being stored. Okay. But there was a hole, a molasses oh, hole in the bucket. Yes, in the in the giant molasses <laughs> oh. bucket. Oh, dear Ma- Liza. Maybe there's a molasses pipeline of some kind. I'm not sure. Hmm. Well, we have to do a little more research before we do the molasses flood. It sounds like. But yeah, I agree. There. Are, one of the challenges of of doing this uh, kind of show is that uh, there are a lot of podcasters who thought up the idea. of <laughs> 
of, uh, of two people yammering on about some historical thing they don't really yeah, know that much about. Yeah, it's 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 a fairly common uh, within within a within a narrow genre of. Po- I mean, most podcasts are about sports and true crime, but within the history uh, styles, and so we're always trying to find things that other people wouldn't have found. I think they're also out there trying to find things we haven't found. Added value. No, they don't care. But they're we, dumb we and want, we're smart. We want to get off the beaten path. Right. They're just like, dur, dur, molasses flood. herp derp didn't you see this thing I read in Wired? Um, but we are fortunate uh, as, uh, as the proprietors to have, within the FutureLink community, a lot of very interesting, informed, um, eccentric people from around the globe. We get letters from them all the time. Some of them very hard to read because they're written in Latin or in Aspenian. Cuneiform. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but we hear from people all the time and, and, um, and uh, you know, we're delighted at how, uh, at, at what a diverse audience we have. And it's a pleasure to serve you, futurelings. Thanks for tuning in. This has been Omnibus. And that concludes Mulberry <laughs> Mania. <laughs> I thought it'd be more about mulberries. Oh, well, 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 actually, here's the addenda. Here, during the outro, I'll do the episode. <laughs> okay. Futurelings from our vantage point <laughs> in your distant past. Uh, but today, we, um, we're doing a, a show that was pitched to us by an omnibus listener who goes by the, the handle, Robert K.S. Now, Ken, you have some experience, or you have some, you have some history with Robert K.S.? Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure I've even met Robert. He's uh he's big in the uh, online Jeopardy community. He's a fan, former contestant on the show, but more to the point, I think he's one of the uh founders and uh leading lights of the J Archive, which is an unofficial online archive of hundreds of thousands of Jeopardy clues, something that fans of the show and especially people training to be contestants on the show have always wanted access to and did not exist when I was first on the show in 2004. But I think Robert is one of the, uh, one of the pioneering uh, workers in this genre of archiving old Jeopardy boards. Now, let me, let me just ask, do you, does this mean that someone has manually inputted all these questions and answers throughout? Do they sit and watch old Jeopardies and, and and furiously type as Alex points to the big board and yeah they've been doing it in real time ever since the site started around I don't know two thousand six or seven maybe wow um a little earlier but uh, but they are also archiving old games as they turn up on creaky Ooh. old VHS tapes or whatever <laughs> Jeopardy's not in reruns so when you say the online Jeopardy community uh, my mind just it's just a kaleidoscope of ideas that pop into my head. But tell me more about the online <laughs> Jeopardy community. Is it authorized by the Jeopardy enterprise? No, that's the thing about, I mean, Jeopardy does have a, a website and whatnot, but there's a bunch I of- I bet it's great. There's a bunch does of- it have some 8-bit animation? It's <laughs> 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 pretty good. Is it? I'll go there right now. Jeopardy.com. What's going on there today? <laughs> It's showing all the upcoming guest hosts on the show. It's a it's a solid site. So while while we were recording this show, uh, Futurelings in your distant past, um, the Jeopardy program was still featuring guest hosts. But when this show airs, that there may be um, there may have been some 
some new news. Is the, that right? The guest hosts will still be running. I, I don't know when they're going to announce. Um, when this show airs, the guest hosts will still be running. Yes. Okay. All right. Good. So nobody, nobody in the future knows anything more than we do. In the distant future, people know whether or not Anderson Cooper ended up hosting Jeopardy. For He's who years. I'm rooting for. We all, we all, we all yeah. love Anderson. Yeah. Silver Fox. Although, uh, although uh, Katie Couric, you know, warm warms the cockles of my heart. Very chipper. Yeah, she's chipper. She's a cockle warmer. Uh, there's, but in addition to that, Jeopardy official site, um, really the um, there, there's a bunch of fan fora, including probably most prominently the J Archive, which is you know because it has hundreds of thousands of past clues. It's it's a valuable resource for people who want to get better at the show. Oh, I see. So it's a site that will routinely be mined by. People who are like, well, you know, I want to go on Jeopardy, but I don't know opera that much. So let me just see. What they've asked. Yeah. Let me see dozens and dozens of opera categories from years past. And you know, it's a, I'll make flashcards. How much Jeopardy slash fic is there? I don't know if I have ever seen. Come on. There's just not a lot of free time in the show. We know everything that's going on. I mean, anything that doesn't, we don't see happen during a commercial. But it's all in the back. It's all in the dressing rooms, right? Oh, I think you, you mean before and after the game. Yeah, it's, uh, right. Like after the game, it's like good, good job. It's a real swing and then swing and party yeah, back there. Somebody grabs somebody else, and there's lots of kissing. I used to make that joke about the college tournament that it would be like, uh, you know, they're they're always talking about how horny the Olympic Village is. Yeah, you know, you could, like the Olympic Village is just nonstop sexcapades for the whole. You think the Olympics are, you know, a high minded uh, path to world peace. Just but like really, they were in ancient Greece. But really, it's just young, fit people hopping all over each other, just like they were in ancient Greece. Well, the thing about the Olympics is when you are done with your, I mean, it, it's all these, these big flashy moments. You go do your thing and then you're done. But the Olympics linger on and you're there in the Olympic village just walking around. And you're still full of adrenaline. Yeah. Tight swimsuits. Wearing skimpy stuff. Yeah. You can, it's no wonder that people get up to no good. But I would think but you I, wouldn't I, get into a sexcapade before your event. Right, because it would it would sap your precious bodily fluids. That's what they say. Yeah, I remember asking a college tournament person if that if that went on at the and at the hotel. Apparently, a little different. Oh, because they're nerds. I don't know. Well, that doesn't stop the band people. It's true. It's true. But uh, I don't know. Maybe they're just. Um, I don't know. Hmm. Maybe they really are too high minded. Yeah. For them, it's all about. I can see that the answers and questions. Trying to picture anything sexy happening within the Jeopardy verse. It's hard for me to hard for me to do, frankly. You don't find, you don't find Jeopardy sexy on a nightly basis like I do? Sexy. Yeah. Okay. No, the, now that I'm putting you, it together, I do. Yeah. Do you think the set should have like maybe more bean bags and, and, <laughs> and throw pillows? The thing is there are a lot of dark corners in the Jeopardy uh, studio, right? I mean, the, all that stuff under the bandstand, what's happening under there and in the back? I mean, you guys kept parading in and out and there are a lot of, there are a lot of shadowy corners. And that's what they're for. I bet you that. I bet you there are people getting it on. Probably all the time. Hmm. Well, so our uh, correspondent today, our supporter, our futureling friend, Robert K.S., um, because he is a donor at the Washing Bear level, he sent in four suggestions. And, um, and this happens all the time. We get, we get suggestions from listeners all the time. And generally, uh, people send in a suggestion, and it's accompanied by just a very brief explanatory short paragraph 
um, trying to explain why why it would be an interesting topic. Often they will target uh, a suggestion to one of the two of us. This would be a good John show because yeah. it's about some uh, Alaskan mountain climber. Yeah, it's about airplanes, and you know it would help if he had walked across Europe, which he never seems to mention. Does that ever show up in job listings? Walking across Europe a plus. <laughs> or it's like, hey, this is an esoteric math, math question that, you know, or like a sports thing that neither one of you understand. Ken would be perfect for this. Yeah, and uh, they often have a pretty good sense of the omnibus aesthetic. Rarely yeah. are we like, uh, do you ever listen to the show? Yeah. But this, um, this suggestion or this list of four suggestions came with extensive notes. And we've seen this before, too. Well, Robert is a Jeopardy champion. Uh, he's a Jeopardy champion, and uh, and w- after I did a little research on Robert, um, he's a uh, he's he works in patent law, mm-hmm. and he's a prominent. That's like my uh, my own family is full of IP lawyers. Yeah, he's a, a prominent Midwesterner. You know, the Midwest is is sparsely populated, so it doesn't take much to be like the biggest guy in Ohio, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, who lives in Ohio? If you're not going to ride down the road. To see your neighbors, you might just stay home and uh, and go down Wikipedia rabbit holes all day. That's right. If you're not gonna, yeah, put put two horses on your buggy and and uh, and head over to Indiana to get some uh, to get some new overalls. But so Robert sent us these uh, these suggestions, and um, they also, I mean, his suggestions really stuck out to us. Are, are you going to go through the ones that you did not select? Well, should I? Should I do? Yeah, I'll, I'll do. Well, because, because Maybe there's, briefly. A, there's another one that, that, uh, that appeals to me. Um, my sister, I just picked, I just picked my sister up at the airport last night and she started talking about, she just made a, a trip to Florida and, uh, she said, oh, there was a, a bull mastiff puppy where I was staying. And I said, you know, hilariously, I was just reading about the old English Mastiff as I was waiting in the parking lot to pick you up at the airport. And she mm. said, for what? And I said, because it was suggested to me as a, as a, uh, an omnibus topic. And so I started, re- and she's a fan of dogs. I started regaling her with, with facts about the old English Mastiff. And she was very excited and thought that for sure today that I would be doing our episode today on the on the mastiff. She got a little personalized omnibus there in the car. She did. I gave her the full the full story of the mastiff, and and uh, there's then there's much to rejoice in about the 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 breed of the mastiff. It's not one of these breeds that's a result of like um like sort of orchid breeding dog people of the 19th century who took who took some poor two dogs and combined them in a freakish science experiment to make the toy chihuahua or whatever it is. Teacup you know. schnauzer. Yeah. A lot of these, a lot of, a lot of the dog breeds are, are fairly recent inventions and the Mastiff turns out to be an ancient, ancient dog older than humans. It, it, uh, it used what? to have wings. It lived in the trees. It, uh, ate Mastodon meat. And it always looked like a Mastiff except with wings until it evolved the wings away. It's, an, it's, it's older than ferns, the Mastiff. I wish we hadn't evolved the ferns away or the wings away. Well, I know. Well, except that the largest Mastiff weighed something like 350 pounds. So would you like a winged 350-pound Swo- Mastiff community? Sw- swooping down on you? Yeah, if they just sort of lived around here and it was a, it was a risk every time you went out? Uh, you could put like a bell on them or something, the way they do for cats. Mm. Like a, like a bell. bell, like a Swedish cow? Like a Liberty Bell. <laughs> dong, dong. dong. 
Uh, but but so the the four suggestions and and Robert very curiously suggested a topic and then with a slash added an adjacent kind of contextualizing topic to each of his topics. So for instance, uh, the book symbolism in Greek mythology by Paul dial or yeah. Dial. Okay. Some classic mythology text, I guess a classic mythology text, but the real topic is the, the sort of autodidactic philosophy of Paul dial Hmm. who, you know, it, it was a contemporary of, or maybe a slightly later contemporary of of Floyd and or Floyd Freud and Jung and who developed kind of his own and he had a he has one of these wonderful life stories developed a sort of his own um experiential psychology and 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 ultimately became kind of a cult figure within French German psychological communities but he will not be appearing on today's omnibus not not except as this reference no adios paul dial um and uh and symbolism in greek mythology was his book where he kind of psychoanalyzed greek gods and i happen to be right now reading metamorphoses by ovid as part of my book club and so i was very curious about his his writings but i felt like i couldn't do the episode justice until I had either read his text or finished um, Ovid. Ovid. It seems like uh, Ovid, it seems right. like Robert is really uh, maybe he's spying on you. Like he knows what you and your what your sister wants to talk about at the airport. He knows yep. what your book club is reading. Yep. It's curious because in his proposals here, he did not specify who he intended these uh, topics mm. to. You know who who he intended them for, but within his text. He does seem several times to be talking to me. And as a as a Jeopardy fan person, I would assume he would not care about me at all and want to talk to you and have you do his you reinforce his Maybe he's bored of Jeopardy people. Maybe he hangs out with Jeopardy people all the time. I certainly do. I certainly like, am. You're like the antidote to that. The antidote. John, the antidote, Roderick. So the old English Mastiff was another of his suggestions. And then uh this one does seem more like a Ken episode, the Honeywell versus Sperry uh or uh, Honeywell versus Honeywell versus Sperry Rand which was a lawsuit about the uh ENIAC computer and how it mm. um and the copyrights you caught me in the middle of doing the hokey pokey so I'm all turned around used, hope you're enjoying your day too you used the c word I hope that our our I, listeners were able to hear that why is she doing the hokey pokey I don't know Mark Miles if you can amplify Alexa for that little little burst it'd be curious I'd I'd be curious to hear any futurelings that know what the hell she does it humanize about. Alexa to you that she talks about uh, different children's dances she's doing no it doesn't help me no that that, that doesn't it, make her seem more reliable it to me. enrages me just as much as when ATMs try and talk to me like hi friend how are you today what what, what can I like to do you for uh, yeah. but Honeywell versus Sperry Rand um and the uh, and the brainiac culture, I guess that that uh, that was uh, there, th- it. It remains in dispute the results of this lawsuit because what what the lawsuit concluded was that the uh, that the copyrights that uh, the copyrights on ENIAC 
technology. Maybe patents, probably? Or patents, right. Um, the patents of, of, and I guess it's ENIAC, not ENIAC. Although, oh, I, don't, I don't know how to say it. Yeah. The, uh, the patents on ENIAC were basically invalidated, and a lot of that, a lot of the, uh, the computer science became sort of public domain. You got oh, away with one. I did. She made a little peep when you said the C word, but um, public domain well before what, uh, when they when those patents would have expired. Ooh. So the patents would have extended into the early '80s, but because they were invalidated in this court opinion um, in the '60s, it sort of opened the floodgates to the personal computer revolution. And again, this is a legal battle that will not be appearing in this entry. This is not an entry about that. No. The first suggestion, Robert's first suggestion, was the Multicollis Mania slash Shakespeare's Mulberry. Shakespeare's Mulberry. And Shakespeare's Mulberry is, uh, as you'll see in the episode, this is, uh, this is where Robert has perhaps, um, he's perhaps slash added a whole separate topic because Mulberry Mania is an omnibus episode on its own. But he also thinks we need to get into what Shakespeare? Well, because, because Mulberry's, there is a, a Shakespearean connection. Mulberry's appear in Shakespeare and then Mulberry's became part of, uh, the Shakespeare story in life. Mm. So the, Robert has a, a, a beautiful and active mind, and he sees connections spiraling outward. That's right. And in fact, he sent those all to us. Sent them all to us. But what separates Robert's suggestions from any other we've ever received? Length. Is <laughs> length. And also, um, uh, Robert is a completionist and a, clearly a, a, a legal scholar, or a, you know, he has a, a legal mind. And Robert, in his in his suggestion, basic suggestions, basically wrote four complete magazine articles uh, that he could, where he did extensive research, and the magazine articles themselves more or less stand on their own. Maybe Robert should have a podcast. It seems like he's missing a trick. He is now paying us to make him do research for us for free. And I wonder whether maybe Robert doesn't have a melodious voice, or maybe that has never stopped me. Well, no, your voice gets more melodious all the time. No, it does not. <laughs> you know what we should do? We should start you smoking. That's really what I need. <laughs> you know, if you smoked a, just a little bit. What if, you know how they use auto-tune on, for people who can't sing? Can't they just make everyone into a newsreader now with a little digital help? Like, like why, why couldn't uh, Mark Miles uh, make me sound like, uh, you know, make me sound like... Uh, Burl Anderson Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mark Miles, I would like to suggest that uh, for the next little bit, you put a um, a booming stentorian voice. Yeah, on if you can just put a filter on Ken, uh, that um, you know that basically makes him sound like Foster Brooks. Is that a thing? Hit the Foster Brooks button. Well, let's see if Mark Miles can do it. He's an audio engineer. Mark Miles, the uh, the third Beatle of the Omnibus program. So here we are at uh, at what we could generously call the beginning of the show, top of the show here, and uh, and I was you know faced with this extensive 
research that Robert had done, and I felt somewhat guilty at being, I guess, able to not do any research for this show and just read Robert's ma- magazine article. What a parasite you are. Well, yeah, right. But, uh, you know, as you say, like... There's plenty of shows where people just read notes about stuff they don't know about. Sure, right. Well, and so I thought I would experiment with that today. And uh, what's strange is that Mulberry Mania was on, was already something that I had been considering as an omnibus topic. You knew about mulberries and their respective mania? Well, I got so jealous when you did boysenberries and it was a very popular episode and I was like, why, you know, why does Ken have why does he corner the market on on berries here? And then I did Fern Fever, which, you know, I thought was a pretty successful show. Love Fern Fever. But um there was Fern Fever Fever when it came out, do you remember? Yeah, Fern Fever Fever. Fern Fever Fever swept the country. Uh and then, you know, then you well, you know, your your shows are very popular. I'm always I feel like maybe this isn't clear to futurelings, but I, you know, I'm in desperately locked in a competition to the death with you over whose shows get more likes. Oh, is that true? No, I, not at all. I, I don't I'm not on Facebook, so I don't see it. I would argue that the secret sauce of my shows is you interrupting and yeah. vice versa. Right. So really it might be a referendum on which of us has worse shows. You're barely interrupting on this show. Well, I don't want to interrupt Robert. Oh, I see. He's paying see. for the privilege. Sure, it's a, it's 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 it would be rude. Sure, it's respect, right? Anyway, so what I'm going to do? Also, you haven't said anything yet. Oh, true. <laughs> still waiting. Still waiting for the mulberries and the mania. <laughs> what I'm going to do today? It's a it's an unusual. It's a different kind of show. I'm just going to read Robert's email. And then, uh, Ken, as, as we go down, if you have any questions, you can, you can ask, and then I will, I'll turn to my own research uh, that I'd already done about mulberries. Okay. To, so you're a mulberry expert at this point. Well, you, you You're know, just using Robert's notes for structure. Perhaps not an expert, but, but Robert's notes are going to, you know, I'm going to fill in if there are, and honestly, he really did quite a bit of work here. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see if you even can formulate a question that Robert hasn't covered. What if we call them Robert's Rules of Order? Let's do. Let's call these Robert's Rules of Order. And he has conveniently sort of, uh, he's put each thought, he's he's prefaced each thought with a single dash. Now, what's the copywriter take on that? It's just a, it's it's like an, an email equivalent of a bullet point. Yeah. He also has a lengthy bibliography. I don't know if you saw well, that's the other thing. He <laughs> he put he put so many links at the bottom of his essay. This is um, how you became an expert on mulberry. Yeah. I should just we should just put this up on the site. All of his, if you want to do, if you'd want to read all these other like source texts, because this is the only uh, omnibus that will ever have any kind of academic rigor, because it was not right. You and I working right. right. Got it. Got it. Uh, but so so the work that I've done here is I've taken his email and I've put it in eighteen point types so I can read it, and I've put uh, paragraph breaks wherever he had a dash. Wow! Yeah, so I've done quite a bit of. Um, I don't use the word hero lightly, John, but <laughs> that's that's fantastic. Okay, so we're going to get a little background. We're going to get a little little bit of Robert's biography sprinkled in here. We're going to get to know Robert a little bit better too. This is very unusual, even for a request. Uh... A request omnibus entry. Well, I feel like in the future, if you want, uh, if you want to uh, f- to frame your request in the form of writing like a very long magazine article about the topic, you know, Ken or I may this may be a very popular show. Robert may end up being a being a cult figure. 
here in the program. Although, uh, maybe not. There could be statues of him in the future alongside yeah. us. Yeah, people are like, okay, all right, all right, John, you know. Except he, in his statue, he's actually he's actually researching something. Yeah, right. He's like... Uh, and you and I are talking with our butts like um, Ace Ventura. <laughs> he's the real hero. Uh, Ken, how are your underpants? Comfortable? No, no complaints. If there's one thing listeners to the Omnibus know, it's that you like Soviet airplanes... I do. ...and trains... Uh, yes. ...and uh, high-tech undergarments from Mack Weldon. I do. You know, for a long time, I got my underwear... You know, I wore preppy underwear for a long time, which are big, blousey boxer shorts. Uh, and then I switched over at some point to Costco underwear, which is not any good. Uh, but then my life changed in a moment. The first time I tried on Mack Weldon underwear. Uh, it was an incredible moment. And even now, I sit here before you today, comfortable and breezy, and protected by silver threads. I never get the impression that you are chafing nope. or using any kind of uh, uh, cheap or low-tech, low-grade, regressive uh, 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 threads or fabrics nope. around your midsection. For a while, 20 years ago, I wore German bikini underwear for a while. Uh, and nothing else. And, and, uh, and I was legendary on Capitol Hill. Uh, but no, I, I, I found that that, uh, stuff, uh, also was not anywhere in the, in the, the class of Mack Weldon underwear. They and also, a, it was stolen by all my girlfriends. They make a wide range of stuff. So they will certainly have a customized fabric that's right for you. And it'll probably have some high tech sounding name like air knit X yep. or warm knit, which really, I mean, just knowing that it's called something so cool with maybe a capital letter in the middle of the word really pays for itself. Let me also sing the praises of their super cool socks. Um, you know, I'm kind of one of these uh, funny socks guys. And do they make socks with a, a pizza and a Van Gogh canvases on them? No, nothing dumb like that. But they have cool patterns like, you know, they have uh, black and white camouflage and they have mm. dots and stripes. I mean, they're classy but also fun, and uh, I wear uh, almost exclusively Max Wel Mac Weldon socks. I am well. very skeptical. I'm sure it's just some advance in technology that's created socks as personality. Yeah, you know, the people with the socks that have Yorkies on them, or, yeah. or a map of Slovenia. No, I kind of fell into that trap, but then got out of there as fast as I could, flying toasters or whatever. But but socks that have a little bit of personality, you know, socks that have character. I still, I, I subscribe and Mack Weldon's got them in profusion. I got a sweatshirt from them that I like. I got pants I that I like. And, uh, and I know you love their Weldon blue free loyalty program. I do. It's really fun. They give you, you know, I'm not, I, I again, I don't feel like I'm i uh, I'm a rube or susceptible to this kind of thing, but you know, they reward you if you get, uh, if you buy things, uh, the reward program kicks in pretty early and uh, and it makes it so you almost can't afford not to buy Mack Weldon socks and underwear. You're getting like 20% off uh, yeah. your orders from that point on. So for 20% off your first order, which is a heck of a deal, because most people have to earn that 20%, uh, go to MacWeldon.com slash Omnibus and enter the promo code Omnibus. And that'll get you 20% off. Boom. That's MacWeldon.com slash Omnibus and enter promo code Omnibus. To get 20% off, and it's guaranteed. You can keep your first pair of underwear, and they'll refund it if you don't like it. That's MacWeldon.com, Omnibus, 
promo code omnibus. Reinventing men's basics. Okay, here we go. Now, imagine this in Robert's voice. Maybe I should do this in a British accent to distinguish Robert from, you know, people in Ohio. Does it bother you that he's not British? Uh, Well, people in Ohio have a distinctive accent. Which you can do. Hey, Mark Miles, why don't you turn on the guy from Ohio filter when John talks so we can hear with pinpoint accuracy what an Ohioan sounds like. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna say do the Arnon. Uh, I'm going to say, yeah, do the Arnon out. Uh, do they say Washington? That's more of a Missouri they, thing. I think they say Washington. Washington? used to. I think they say, do they say roof? I think they say roof. Sometimes I say roof if I'm in the mood. They definitely say pop. Instead of soda? Some of them do. Like it. Anyway, here he goes. <clears throat> Where I live in Northeast Ohio, mulberries are classed by dour arborists as weed trees. Ooh. So he's already slammed a bunch of arborists. For their insufficiently, um, for their narrow-minded view of, of yeah. tree value. Yeah, they're not like hilarious arborists. They're dour and, and circumspect. Uh, but now speaking of mulberries... They are ubiquitous in urban and rural places. Ubiquitous. Proliferated by bird droppings and lodging themselves in fence rows. I want to look at a mulberry tree and see if I actually will recognize one. So there are a lot of different varieties of mulberry. And uh, and a lot of mulberries themselves look like really hilariously long blackberries. Yeah, that's what I'm seeing. Some of them are like blackberries as long as human fingers. It looks like you're taking a picture of a blackberry with your uh, panorama mode, but then your hand slipped or something. Yeah. Or and the berry moved. It's a hilariously long mulberry. I don't know if Seattle has mulberry trees, urban mulberry trees. There's those gross choke cherry things. I have not seen native mulberries here in Seattle. And if people have planted them as, as uh, like fruit varieties, I haven't seen those either. I think I would be, if I saw a mulberry, I would... I would race to it. Maybe the climate doesn't lend themselves to mulberries here. There are mulberries all around the United States, as we'll see. Are they uh, um, Are they native? Well, there's I don't one. Jump ahead. So the red mulberry is native. The other varieties, the white and black, there are many, many mulberries, but a lot of them are imported, oh. uh, and and we'll see why soon. Um, again, to Robert. Mulberries, the fruit, can be very tasty, but they're hard to find in stores because they don't keep more than about a day and the season is relatively short. Mm. Um, and, and as we'll see, mulberries uh, as a, as a, uh, as a, like a culinary a, item. Well, as a, as a crop, mm. uh, we're not planted for their fruit. Wow. Yeah, we'll see that in oh, a actually, second. I know this. I'm now I'm the guy on the podcast pretending to be surprised. Yeah, you're like, say what? Wait, what? No, tell I me know. more. I know. I know what mulberries are for. Also, their flavor doesn't seem to be well distillable, so you don't find mulberry flavored food. That's what I was going to say. There's no mulberry jam no. or whatever, right? Because because kind of the way that the boysenberry um, was the the result of trying to make a, a a fruit that was stable, shelf stable, or 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 uh, cannibal cannibal distillables. Um, no, it wasn't the product of it, but it was the, that was a component in the show. Sure. Um, the component of the story. I don't remember. I don't remember. It, it ended at Disneyland. It ended. <laughs> that's right. It was a great show. And I, uh, and like all our shows, I remember every word we said, uh, but mulberries are not well distillable. It's kind of like, I've always been complaining about salmon berries where they, you know, for, they have a mild taste, which is just fine for walking in the woods. Yes. But nobody ever thought, let's have some salmonberry flavored candy. Let's put salmonberry syrup on our hotcakes. 
said no one ever. Well, and they and there are by some reports mulberries are so fragile that just plucking one off the tree the fruit kind of explodes and your hands are drenched in mulberry juice. Like you can't even really pick them to take them home. Um, but, but you can, and people use them to flavor ice cream. It's just, it, by the time you would get into a commercial process, Mm. it, 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 this, the fruit doesn't survive. Um, sometimes you can find mulberry wine or mulberry tea, but generally mulberries are not farmed, uh, Peren for their fruit. Right. And uh, their consumption tends to be limited to opportunistic foraging. That's my favorite kind of foraging. Now, you'll notice, uh, even now at second paragraph, that Robert has a very uh, very distinctive prose style. He's casual. He's he's smart. His, his writing is good. This is very unusually uh, eloquent for an omnibus entry, actually. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I, I like the fact that we have complete sentences and uh, and dour arborists. Yeah, I'm I, and I'm getting to practice my dramatic interp. Uh, a new paragraph. Depending on the tree species, the fruits range. Now, what he there, here's a little bit of a typo. He says the fruits range color, but of course the fruits range in color. It's an informal email. He didn't know you were going to be doing a, a dramatic monologue. Did he it? not? He should have been ready. Yeah. Anytime you email us, this could happen. So from now on, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna paren sick any of these, uh, any of these That's good. typos. I'm just gonna fill it in. You're I'm punching gonna, down. Yeah. <clears throat> Depending on the tree species, the fruits range in color, size, and fruit flesh density, which I like to think I have flesh density. I feel like you I, could I, measure I, my flesh. Density. I have ranged in flesh density over the course of my life. Some mulberries are a deep dark purple. Others are pink. I'm picturing purple for sure. Others, wait for it, are bright white. Wait, really? Yeah. Fruit color People cannot be now. Fruit color. Oh, can, yeah. This is this is what's really crazy. You don't really see a white berry that often. It's got little black spots. It looks like a kiwi or something. How how, how would you think a white mulberry would taste uh, compared to like a purple? Mulberry? You would assume it would be less intense, right? It would, these would be the the wan vampiric ones but they're kind of gorgeous a white mulberry is kind of a gorgeous fruit it looks like it's made of rice um and if you can you imagine like sitting down to a royal feast and a big platter of white mulberries came out very fancy oh that would be so fancy uh this is what's very interesting fruit color cannot be used however to reliably identify tree species because the asian native morris alba or white mulberry can produce purple fruit. Wait, what? And the fruit of the North American native Morris rubra, or red mulberry, starts out as white. So it might be different. It's a different times in its life cycle, or maybe it's um, soil conditions, like the hydrangea can can affect the fruit. Or if, you know, like the way that you're famous for insulting snakes, if you're out insulting mulberry trees, maybe their, their, their peak makes them redden in color, in rage, and if you um, if you neglect them, maybe they maybe if you, t- if you turn a cold shoulder to them, they turn white. I hope they curse you with embarrassment. I hope they curse you back. They are very tall. They really are. They are the tallest fruit. Well, yeah, and the bushes get very tall when they mature. Um, so Robert, again, I'm now pretty sure, based on descriptions available online, that the single tree I'm most fond of and which produces deep purple fruit, is not a native red mulberry, as I had first assumed from the fruit color, but a white mulberry, 
or maybe a red-white hybrid. Mm. And the trees do hybridize. And in some, and this is now, I'm, I'm speaking now, not Robert. I can tell. Oh, thank you. I, I can tell where it shifted. Well, so I'm wondering whether I should I should speak in italics or what? Do I give him an accent? Just say know. close quote. Or maybe you can do like a Ken Burns documentary and say, Robert K.S. <laughs> How did white mulberries the... I may do that. Um, uh, mulberries, the red, the Native American uh, red mulberry bush is now sort of endangered and in fact regarded as endangered in many places because... Because of the new arrivals? Because the new arrivals have cross-pollinated with them and the the pure red mulberry strain is um, is now hard to find. We've also done a show about endangered northeastern trees. We have. Was it Dutch elm disease or uh, chestnuts yeah. or something? D- Dutch elm remember. disease. And also, wasn't there? Didn't we do something about how there's no more corn and no more apples? Or did we just talk about that in our private lives? All the apples are all do, the. Do you think the show was gone. called "There's No More Corn and No More Apples"? There's no more corn and no more apples. We Johnny Appleseed. We were talking That's about true. There, yeah, there are some of those cultivars just don't exist anymore. Yeah. <clears throat> How did the white mulberries, the Chinese plants whose leaves are the preferred diet of silkworms, get to northeast Ohio? That's not how Robert actually talks. He's uh he's Shelby Foot. Isn't there somebody who was isn't there some famous movie character that was just oh I think it's um I think it's Daniel Craig in Knives Out is doing an impression impression of Shelby Foot from the Civil War. Oh. That's where he got his... Yeah, no, that makes sense. His honey-baked accent. (laughs) Um, English colonists brought the trees to America in the early 17th century. And it... um, They brought brought some British mulberries. Well, so... And uh, let me... I don't think that... um, I don't think that we talk about this. I don't think Robert talks about this. But actually, King James... um, There's a whole English history of... Uh, of trying to cultivate mulberries for this reason that we're about to uh, that we're dancing all around, we're dancing all around dramatically. Um, but uh, but mulberry trees arrived very early in Jamestown um, as a uh, as an attempt to cultivate a silk production industry in the Americas, sericulture, and um, so sericulture is is the the whole process of growing mulberries to feed uh silkworms to produce the the cocoons that from whence we derive silk cuz the chinese worms that produce silk only will thrive in mulberry trees white mulberries specifically and what the what the what the um what the pupa eat what the caterpillars eat is not the mulberry fruit that looks like a giant white blackberry finger, but in fact the leaves of the mulberry. And um, and so the the bushes and and this as as I think probably most futurelings know, um, for many thousands of years the Chinese kept this this secret this sericultural um, cycle. Uh, a state secret. It was a, the, the sericultural cycle was a state secret. It's a very alliterative uh, tactic. Yeah. And, and I'm, and I'm great at saying S's because of my 11, um, like missing teeth. They didn't want word getting out to Japan or India as to how one did this. Right. Then, because then they could keep selling them silk at outrageously high prices. Silk was an incredible commodity. I mean, it was uh, like the, um, the market of silk in the, in the not, not 
like ancient world, but yeah, I guess, would you say ancient world? I guess ancient is the world. Sure. Um, it was one of the, silk was one of the things that opened up the world. Uh, the, the silk road famously, um, from, you know, all the way from, from Turkey to China. And if you could grow silk everywhere, why would you, why would you take a camel train to China? I mean, I ask this question of you a lot. I'm I'm reading right now a PETA uh, document arguing that uh, the current silk industry is very hard on the silkworms. They have to die once they've made their little cocoons. Well, and that has always been true. Often so, in cruel ways. So PETA is not wrong. Um, the silkworm, as it as it metamorphoses metamorphosizes into a moth, um, it it has to die along the way. It has to die before it. Before it comes out, because because that would ruin the silk. Yeah, as it uh, as it chews its way out of its cocoon, it uh, it chews through the fibers, and and part of you have mean, holes in your tie. Yeah, what what, what you uh, the way that you that you d- take silk from a um, from a cocoon mm-hmm. is that you actually unwind it. It's a continuous thread, or rather. Long, it is long, long sections of continuous thread that you can kind of, um, you can spool together, but oh, you, wow. you need to, un, and, and this is the, this is the real difficulty in, in producing silk as a industrial product is that unwinding a cocoon is extremely labor like intensive. I can't, I, I can't get my earbuds untangled. It's really a hassle. And also it is a skill. Um, like, uh, you can't just do it. If I gave you a cocoon. a cocoon and said, unwind this, you would almost certainly ruin it. And I don't, and that's not a slur. I'm not, I'm not, I don't say that about you in particular, in, in particular, cause I couldn't do it either. Ken, um, we need to have the long graceful fingers of the, uh, of the sericulturist. Well, so as you, so the way that you produce silk from a cocoon is that once the once the worm has spun its cocoon and and uh, inhabits it and is inside transforming, um, you harvest the cocoon, worm in, inside, and then you put them in a pot and boil them. Oh, well, that's not nice. It's not nice, and it kills the worm. And then there's an outside, a kind of you know a, a crust to the outside. It's also like a fibrous. Um, husk on the outside of the cocoon. On the outside of the it's not silk. It's not silk, okay. although it's it is used even now, uh, used to stuff pillows. I mean, it's a kind of soft uh, byproduct mm. of silk production, uh, and it can be used for a lot of things. So you boil the you boil the cocoon, the husk you um, you take off, and then to stuff pillows to stuff pillows, and then there's a there's a little spooler. Um, and this process is called reeling and you sit and reel in the, uh, you, out of the pot of, of boiling water, which, or hot water, which has to be exactly the right temperature to kind of loosen the, the strands you reel in the, um, the silk, but to do it properly, the silk cannot, the, the, the thread of silk cannot line up parallel to itself as you reel it on it. You have to reel it. What would happen if it did? Well, it becomes gummy and sticks together Mm. and it, it it doesn't, um, it it doesn't dry 
maintaining its kind of f- super fine, clean nature. And so the way the the proper way to do it as you reel it is to reel it onto the spool at an angle, and then on the way back cross angle, right? So that every spool of silk, and I think if you've ever seen a spool of silk, it is it is um, reeled on this way. It's a uh, it's a crosshatch. Back and forth. And right. Back and forth. So that every time a, uh, a, the strand goes over itself, it's at an angle. Got it. And it doesn't allow it to kind of gum up. And this- You this, said I couldn't do it, but I think now you've uh, you've walked me through it and I bet I'd be pretty good. Well, I think you and I would be better knowing that than if we had just sort of started uh, spooling it around our thumb. But there, it's, you know, it's an incredibly strong fiber. Mm-hmm. But also incredibly, um, I mean, it's it came out of a worm's butt. It's not. So what does that mean? It's stinky. No, it's no, but but it's it's a thing that yeah. There's I think there are five hundred ways to mess it up, and only one way to do it right. Um, and this will play out in our story. Uh, here we go. How did white mulberries, the Chinese plant whose leaves are the preferred diet of silkworms, get to Northeast Ohio? Yeah, I've often wondered. English colonists brought the trees to America in the early 17th century. In 1624, the legislature of Virginia required required every male resident to plant at least four white mulberry trees. That's very early. To promote a North American silk industry. Now, this is before the, you know, before there's a, a mass tobacco industry, before there's a cotton industry of any kind. Um, one of the very first, you know, and it's part of the mandate of Virginia. I wondered if they thought it was for favorable to silk conditions in a way that Europe was not. Because I don't know any stories of... European powers mandating mulberry planting back home, or did they do that too? So this was part of, uh, 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 like silk was one of the fine goods, one of the finest goods along with uh, frankincense and myrrh and gold and, and uh, now. And, uh, and it will be, it will be tobacco. Yeah. Um, and then later cotton, but it's a fine good, a processed good that there's, as as there is increasingly a global trade, there's also a sense of uh, monopoly and a feeling that we're now, you know, silk is such a prized commodity and we're dependent on a Chinese silk. And so we need to find a way to make silk a cash crop elsewhere so that we can control the market. You know, it's the, it's the usual English capitalism trying to figure out a way that they can be not dependent. So there's not a silk gap. You don't want a silk gap. You don't want a silk gap. And so trying to figure out like here we, here today the, we're fine with everything we own being manufactured in China. Absolutely. It's, it, it's the preferred way. Cause it's easier to ship raw materials to China on a giant boat, steaming the whole way, just spewing cold ash into the sky, have them, process it and steam it all the way back and truck it to your home in Northeast Ohio to my dollar store than it is to just make it there. But we'll see that this was true hundreds of years ago. Mm. In the 1820s and 1830s, now we're jumping ahead. A sericulture craze exploded out of Connecticut 
aided by sericulture-promoting government subsidies. Wait, where, when is this? Early 19th century? Early 19th century. So I'll fill so, in— Suddenly, Connecticut is, uh, is trying to get a silk industry going. I'll, I'll fill in some of the gaps here. Okay. Um, throughout the uh, 17th and 18th centuries in the United States, there was a, a, a lot of interest in the idea that we could grow silk— that we could we could process silk here in the United States, and that this would be a thing that sort of um, that that it was a that it was a crop where the United States in particular could become, or rather, the Americas could become the new center of silk production to rival China to produce a kind of through you know America and English mills. Um, because silk was not just then a, f- a favored garment, but also was, you know, used in in a lot of applications, and you know, sort of like whale oil. It was a it was a thing that 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 in the United States was promoted as a way of becoming a, a global power. Do you and, think some of this is just cultural after effect of? Uh... You know, the first people who came to these shores accidentally thinking they were in China or India or whatever. Like, this, this is the place we used to think is China, and then it turned out it wasn't, but they could still grow a silk. They could still grow silk. If they wanted. If you think about this period, right, where, uh, um, you know, European, a lot, of, I mean, this is a big part of the motivation of, of colonizing. The, um, you know, turning, taking sugar and, and making a plantation, moving... Uh, potato production and tobacco production and and pineapples and I mean in the case of sugar and coffee and pineapple that's because your your native country doesn't have the weather for it right was that, would that be true of mulberries too uh, well mulberries grow in southern Europe and they were they were being cultivated in southern Europe mm. uh, you know and Turkey and so forth but that's that's also like um, an area that the UK didn't have complete control over and it and you know they're trying this out in i'm sure in in colonial territories all across the world but what was interesting about it was that it could be a sort of family farm enterprise you didn't need to industrialize this across um you didn't need a 10,000 acre farm to do it you could grow 50 mulberry trees or bushes on your you know on part of your farm and it was promoted as a as a family enterprise that um, that the farmer could grow the bushes, and then the women uh. could cultivate the moths and propagate them, and then harvest the um, harvest the, the cocoon, thread, yeah. and then this would be an activity that the women and children with their tiny little hands Mm. and in much of the literature around this invalid people your 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 old aunt you know someone that couldn't work on the farm you could someone in your family you could put them to work sitting and doing this meticulous work of unspooling and reeling the silk they'd be twiddling with some kind of thread anyway and this they'd be doing needlepoint anyway why not 
put them to work. So it wasn't like sugar or coffee where you had to go in and, and Big labor you know, force yeah, and slam a bunch of this stuff forests, into the jungle. Right. This was, and, and it had a very, um, like Puritan and kind of Christian association because there, this could be a, a noble seeming, you know, there, it, it wasn't silk production. Wasn't like coffee or sugar. It's not a commodity that, that brings ruin, mm. right? There's no, you know, coffee. This is early sustainability. Yeah. Coffee tends to make you sit around in a coffee shop and discuss, uh, you know, socialism. I want free range, single source silk. This is just, all this produces is a, this beautiful and valuable silk thread. And so from throughout the colonial period, there were multiple attempts to establish a, a, a silk production industry in the United States. In 1734, the colonial assembly of, in Connecticut passed a, a whole raft of incentives to encourage farmers to grow mulberries, to propagate silk. And Unfortunately, silkworms do not prefer the leaf of the red mulberry. And so- Did we know this then? Did Connecticut know this? Connecticut didn't really know it. Mm. And it took a while of experimenting with, you know, bringing uh, silkworms in to realize that silkworms really prefer the soft, delicate leaf of the white mulberry, the Asian mulberry. I have kids like that too. They should eat what they're given. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Here's what's for dinner. Red mulberry. Sorry. Sorry. Eat up. Crunch, 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 crunch. I guess you just get worse cocoons. Um, in the 1750s, there was a, an American horticulturist. Now, this is me. I'm, I'm just filling in here. A, uh, a, uh, an American horticulturist by the name of Nathaniel Aspinwall, who had a, a, a mulberry nursery on Long Island, and he started, um, he started distributing mulberry bushes as part, as a component of this, um, at this sort of industry, this attempt to establish an American industry that was virtuous and was a kind of bedroom, um, like family business, family business. But the real instigator was Ezra Stiles, the, the, the president of Yale university. <laughs> okay. Who stay in um, your lane, Ezra Stiles? Who in the 1760s decided that that American silk and mulberry cultivation was his? Uh, this was his crusade, and he wrote to all the uh, all his fellow ministers because, as you know, at that time Yale, like all American universities. Uh, was a was a religious institution. I assumed he was a minister because his name was Ezra. Ezra, exactly. Who's going to name your kid Ezra if not someone who intends your child to be a minister and, and ultimately a president of a university? Sure. Ezra wrote to all the the ministers in in his uh, denomination and said, "You should begin cultivating mulberries, and having you know after three years of growing mulberry bushes." You should give one quarter of your mulberries to your parishioners free of charge to lift up the, lift up the race, you know, like give, yeah. like, uh, what a gift to your town. Yeah. Go forth and prosper. And then you continue to cultivate the other three quarters. It's like uh, Amway. It's like Amway, except mulberry bushes. And, and, uh, Stiles was just a fanatic about them and about, you know, promoting them 
as a, as a, a new American industry. He kept a journal, a kind of now renowned journal of mulberry cultivation from the 1760s all the way to the 1790s. Um, and mulberries, you know, George Washington grew mulberries. Uh, mulberries lined the lane at um, Monticello. Mm. Um, and by 1825, mulberries were a uh, like a major crop in the state of Connecticut. They were they were they were throughout the Americas or through the United States or the nascent United States and then the United States. Was it working? Were they getting silk out of it, or were the trees just propagating without without much economic success? Well, they were getting silk, um, but the problem was that they and and by they i mean we americans did not uh, thank you for taking responsibility did not successfully uh perfect the reeling mm. and what we found was uh the the small hands of the children uh, did not was just having small hands did not make it uh our children are small but they're dumb that's still the <laughs> connecticut state motto to this day uh, that's right. Our children are small but dumb, and we and I think what what, what was discovered was that uh, farm wives had a lot of other work to do, and didn't have all day to sit uh, patiently reeling silk threads out of a pot of hot water. And however large our population of uh, disabled people was at the time, uh, the number of people whose disabilities allowed them still to sit all day in front of a pot of hot water reeling silk. Uh, it was not sufficient to to drive an entire industry. So it does not work as a cottage industry. So concept. what happened was we were reeling a lot of low-quality silk. Um, Just like American cheese is not as good as cheese, American silk is not as good as silk. So the first, uh, the first mill, the first, um, like, um, garment mill mm -hmm. in the United States was in Mansfield, Connecticut, it was established in 1810, and when it came time to produce silk garments, the Mansfield Mill imported silk from Southern Europe and Asia, even though in Connecticut at the time, there was this boom. like boom of silk production. Hmm. Uh, and we were producing silk. It was just, it was low quality. So that, now we'll go back to Robert. In the 1820s and 1830s, a sericultural or a sericulture craze exploded out of Connecticut, aided by, aided by sericulture promoting government subsidies. Promise of instant riches spread across the eastern states, then west to Ohio, Indiana, oh. Michigan, and Illinois. So it's like a get rich quick thing. It's a get rich so quick the, scheme. The promise of the frontier. All you needed were some mulberry trees and some silkworm seeds, and you could be a silkonaire. That's a sort of a, he's, he's now he's, uh, Do you think that's he's a, pandering to you. That's a here. Robert neologism. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Millions of white mulberry trees were planted in North America in the span of a decade. Maybe mullionaire would have been funnier. I'm just, I'm just spitballing. You know, you and Robert can do this on a separate That's thread. true. We don't have to do this on the show. Yeah. Email him tonight. Um, but one amateur sericulturalist after another fell victim to rookie mistakes and went bankrupt. As a typical example, Phineas Powers was a New Yorker who in 1836 cleared land in the northeast Ohio county of Lorraine to plant 20,000 white mulberry trees. Whoa. 
His enterprise fared well his first year in operation, but his silkworm stock was ravaged by disease. A few decades, Peren, this is Robert's Peren, a few decades later, Louis Pasteur devoted himself to solving silkworm diseases. So there were all these um, diseases that silkworms in China did not get, or at least they had figured out workarounds. Mm-hmm. Whereas you try it in a new, a new world with new microorganisms and your silkworms get sick. Right. Sick worms. Phineas, Phineas Powers, uh, his, he folded in year two. Phineas. Care and feeding of the silkworms, unspooling of the cocoons, and milling of the thread is highly labor-intensive work, says Robert. I feel like we already covered this. Yes, but was considered to be women's work. And then he says to us, see recent discussion in the Memex episode. He's referring to oh, right. instances cards. where we have talked about women's work in in derisive scare quotes and how well and how it stigmatized different industries and then right. the, the second they were that turned around for market reasons it suddenly seemed respectable and if you think about the silk industry in China dating back thousands of years however it is that the the people of China are uh, whatever the labor division is in unspooling cocoons. Um, they worked that out culturally many, many years before. I've been to a silk farm in Beijing, which seemed to be, I think it was like an indoor kind of underground operation. I don't know. Oh, yeah, that yeah. doesn't seem like it's good for the yeah, mulberries. Yeah, the dark mulberries. you got to have grow lights or something. But uh, I, I feel like it was a lot of women doing their reeling. Right. Well, uh, the women and children in 1830s America evidently were not so interested in all the labor required to reap a few pounds of spun fiber. This, among other problems, led to more interest in the trees than the worms. And here we get to the meat of the story. And now, the rest of the story. Well, I don't, what's interesting about the trees if you don't get silk out of them, Robert? Well, a failed sericulturalist from Massachusetts named Samuel Whitmarsh was one of those who figured out he could make more money selling the trees than manufacturing the silk because the craze oh, was sweeping the nation. So it is like Amway. Yeah. He promised farmers riches in the silk industry if they planted a faster growing white mulberry variety called Morris multicaulis. The trees became a hot commodity and farmers would resell saplings they'd just bought at many X profits. The price for a hundred young trees increased from three dollars in eighteen thirty-four to five hundred a few years later. But this is all going to collapse if nobody can actually make a profit on the silk, well, right? Ken, don't get ahead of yourself. I'm excited. I've, I've, I'm feeling the narrative propulsion of Robert's memo. Soon, the trees were worth too much to be used for silk culture. At the dizzying heights of the craze, one tree, one tree, brought more than one hundred dollars at auction. And that's uh, and that's an eighteen twenty whatever dollar. Yeah. Now he and he credits that to an article in the Los Angeles Times, which I highly recommend. Um, Whitmarsh was accused of selling regular Morris Alba seeds for multicolous prices. His defense became irrelevant when the bubble finally popped in eighteen thirty nine, and his stock became worthless. The mulberry bubble across the country. The phrase. Just another multicolous became a popular phrase used to deride get-rich schemes. Wait, really? Yeah. So oh, how, that's just another multicolous. That's how you. That's how you would use it in a sentence. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. So what would it be? The what would it be like? Bitcoin today? Yeah, just another Bitcoin. That's right. Mm-hmm. And when I told this story to my sister yesterday, she actually she looked at her friend Kenna and they said, "Ah, oh, Bitcoin." 
So just another multicolus. Yeah, just another multicolus. That's what I think about it. Um, uh, many mulberry trees died in the harsh winters uh, or blights of the late 1830s and early 1840s, and the less hardy multicolus variety went extinct in short order. Um, but the progeny of the Alba survivors thri- thrived and spread. So these are uh, these are some hybrids. Today, white mulberries are found in abundance in every state of the union except for Nevada and Alaska. But I don't think here in Seattle. So we'll have to do more research on that. I don't see them. After last gasps in Utah and California was finally done by the 1929 stock market crash. So there continued to be interest in California in like, you know, Pioneer Day, California, that maybe that could be the place that America could develop a silk industry. It's always just around the corner, just around the river bend. But in the 1930s, we developed, started developing synthetic fibers, you know, the early days of rayon and, uh, and rayon made the American silk industry irrelevant. There's still a silk industry, but I guess it's a import luxury good, not a. Yeah, that's right. Um, the North American red mulberry is also not as hardy. The proliferation of the Asian white mulberry and its tendency to hybridize combined with general deforestation are making pure red mulberries rare. In Canada, Morris rubra is today classified as an endangered species. Really? Wait, so, and that's the one that was native. That's our native one, yeah. Well, maybe we should send it to China. Hey, there you go. Yeah, take that, China. Uh, and a couple of, a couple of other, uh, interesting factoids. And I wrote my brother about this cause my brother was a cherry orchardist for many decades. Um, Robert says that mulberries are today sometimes planted in cherry orchards as decoy trees because birds Wait, prefer, well, the birds go eat the mulberries and leave the cherries alone. Mm. Uh, what do you know about them apples? So now. Uh, fully an hour into this episode, I'm going to have to condense Robert's extensive notes on the mulberry in Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. Wait. Yeah. He was going to call this Shakespeare's mulberry. In, in what sense is this related to the works of, of the bard, John? Well, um, Shakespeare retells Ovid, the tragedy of Pyramus and Thisbe. Oh, right. It's in Midsummer Night's Dream. Pyramus and Thisbe in Midsummer Night's Dream. And, um, is there a mulberry tree in that? Well, in Ovid's version, uh, it is that, that is the origin story of the mulberry because as you know, Ovid likes to, it's like, uh, it's like just so stories. Somebody's going to turn into a flower. Yeah. Instead of, instead of the the rhinoceros getting his scales by rubbing himself, uh, you know, to get the itching powder out in this case. Uh, Paramus is, uh, his dead body is lain by a white mulberry. His blood stains the fruit and the gods swayed by Thisbe, uh, forever change the color of the mulberry fruits to honor their forbidden love. Ah, I see. So it's, um, I mean, uh, reading the book, you realize that almost everyone in Ovid, uh, either gets raped and turned into a bull or escapes rape by turning into a tree. Yes. It's like, uh. This flower came from uh, 
a nymph being chased by a horny god. That's right. Whereas this other flower came from a different nymph being chased by a by horny a, god. By a different horny god, right. right. And it's usually the horny god's wife that turns the nymph into a tree. Oh, yeah, sometimes she's mad. Yeah, yeah, it's almost always Juno. Anyway, so Shakespeare, legendarily, planted a mulberry in his own garden in Stratford-upon-Avon. Avon. Avon. <laughs> Stratford upon Yvonne de Carlo. And so now I'm I'm deeply paraphrasing Robert. But um after Shakespeare died, and this is during the period when um when James the first was bringing mulberry saplings into Britain. Oh right, yeah. Uh before you know he then sort of exported it to the United States. Shakespeare always loved the new fad. He really did. And he loved James I. Um, the house where Shakespeare planted this mulberry um, was inherited, you know, uh, by, or inherited slash sold to the Reverend Francis Gastrel. And even then in the 1750s, Shakespeare's old house became a kind of place where Tourists would go, kind of like Kurt Cobain's house here in Seattle, and Courtney Love tore down Kurt Cobain's suicide garage. Right. And similarly motivated, Reverend Francis Gastrel ended up chopping down the the mulberry tree. Because it was attracting because tourists. people were coming and taking cuttings from Shakespeare's mulberry tree. Well, he cut it down? So he cut it down a spiteful and, guy. And that infuriated the residents of Stratford-upon-Avon. Rightly so. Did they did they run him out of town on a rail? They ended up running him out of town. <gasps> um, and uh, But what happened was the wood from the chopped down Shakespeare's mulberry tree uh-huh. was spotted by Thomas Sharp. Uh, and that's sharp with an E at the end, or Sharpie. I'm sure he said Sharpie. Um, who was a local op- entrepreneur. He took the wood and started making little uh, signs of the true cross out of it, except they were little talismans of like, this comes from Shakespeare's mulberry tree. I was reading this old 80s um, like horror magazine from, from Warren the other night, and one of the ads in it was for actual vials of sand from Dracula's castle. Oh. For $17 in 1980, you could get a vial of sand that they claimed came from the exact Romanian castle where, <laughs> where Count Bram Stoker's Dracula lived somehow. And I really Famously wonder. sandy. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. I, I kind of wonder. And the idea is, you know, that this is the same kind of Transylvanian dirt that he would have had in his own casket. But, but I don't know. The historical provenance seemed a little dicey. I feel like you could just get dirt from anywhere in Romania and say it was from Dracula's castle. Well, that's what happened with the, with Shakespeare's mulberry tree. Oh. Like Shards of the True Cross, way more uh, wood items were produced that claimed to be from Shakespeare's mulberry tree than could possibly have come from a single mulberry tree. Makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, Gastrel, not making any more of that. It's like real estate. Gastrel or Gastrel Yvonne. was super... Uh, super frustrated and mad at the residents of Stratford upon Avon and uh, retaliated by tearing down Shakespeare's house. Whoa. And that's why we have no Shakespeare's house to this day. It's true. Today you, you can go to Anne Hathaway's house yes. and the garden's lovely. Yes. But the, all the Shakespeare stuff is a recreation. It's because of this guy. 
You can even uh, you can even sit on the bench outside of Kurt Cobain's old house, which is now I think just owned by some uh, Amazon millionaire. Well, it's it's a park next door. He can't keep people out of a park. He could try. To this day, there are many many trees which are thought to be or which claim to be scions of. Shakespeare's original mulberry. Because of all the cuttings people were taking. Taken from the cuttings and propagated, including one such tree in Central Park. Hmm. Uh, but in 2006, it was determined that that tree was only 80 years old. <laughs> so it cannot be one of Shakespeare's mulberries. <laughs> and I have, a, I have some doubts about it. I, I feel like that if it really, that tree is from the 1920s, then that must have been a a fairly a story of recent vintage. That yeah. This is probably one of Shakespeare's trees. I mean, it had that's two, a 1950s story. A 1950s story, right? Um, and there have been excavations recently, and this is again from Robert. Um, excavations at New Place there in Stratford upon Avon, uh, Shakespeare's home, uh, which lead uh, have lent credence to the theories that Shakespeare was a pot smoker. Wait, really? Yeah. What, what What do you think they found? Like pot. glassware? Yeah, they found they found a broken uh, graphics bong. And a protopipe and like seven little baggies. That's crazy. Full of some really purple buds. I knew it. Hairy purple buds. I knew it. Because sometimes I read some of those sonnets and I'm like, dude, this guy's tripping. Dude, this guy's so well, I want to smoke what this guy's smoking. <laughs> right on, bro. Love, rough winds do shake the darling buds of May. So, in conclusion, in Robert's own words, I have tasted mulberries from trees throughout my neighborhood, across the country. And on three continents. Whoa. We, we kind of have some unusual mulberry expertise here. Robert is not new to mulberries. Mulberry taster, Robert K.S. And you know, uh, mulberries, mulberry trees take between five and eight years to grow to the size that a, that a mulberry or that a, that a silkworm would enjoy its tender leaves. So it's not a thing where you just throw a mulberry in the ground and you got silkworms going. I mean, this is a, this part of the, and this is part of the way that it could be such a, a boom on trees. Because there wasn't, it wasn't a, a, such a quick turnaround that you could say, hey, I bought those trees last year and I'm not a millionaire. There was always that kind of, oh, it takes a little while. Uh, anyway, back to Robert. The best tasting mulberries. Here we go. Come from the backyard in the house where I grew up. My mom makes a killer mulberry pie. Wow, it's like he traveled all around the world to three continents. And it turns out um, the mulberry he was searching for was right in his own backyard. Isn't that so often the case, though? I mean, where are the mulberries that you and I are searching for? We never thought to look. And that concludes Mulberry Mania, entry 815.2S0523, certificate number 26780, in the omnibus. Do we feel bad about letting Robert do all the heavy lifting here, doing all the hard work? No, I think it went pretty well. I mean, I, 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 I filled in some of the missing pieces in Robert's story. We certainly couldn't have testified as to, you know, the, his mom's mulberry pie recipe. We don't no, have access to that. We still don't know whether that's true or not. But Robert, you know, Robert ha is no, like, uh, mulberry come lately. And, you know, all of the, all of the way, all of the, like, here we go round... The mulberry bush. Um, to think that I saw it on Mulberry Street. Mulberry Street and and all the mulberry streets in towns across the United States yeah. all date from this period. Um, Pop Goes the Weasel. 
Oh, the, yeah. The, their first recorded instances are always in 1830 or There's so. a ton of mulberry uh, in the culture relative to how much of it you actually eat, which is zero. Right. And that's, that's all the, the, those are all sort of um, echoes through, speaking of uh, Ovid, um, they're all echoes through, through the sands of time. I kind of enjoyed uh, figuring out why you hear so much about mulberries, but you never actually eat them. Yeah. Oh, it's all silkworms all the way down. Silkworms all the way down. If you would like to uh, suggest a topic of an omnibus show, that's available at the washing bear level of support at patreon.com slash omnibus project. If you enjoy the show and your budget allows, check out that site and uh, pick the donation level that's right for you. You uh, can also find us on social media at uh, Omnibus Project. Uh, I'm at Ken Jennings. Um, you can find John on a separate uh, Patreon site. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com with your own mulberry pie uh, recipes or silk reeling tips. Um, you can send us physical items to our P.O. Box at... Uh, Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Today I just opened this book from a listener named Alan, who sent us an early copy of uh, this children's book he just wrote called Maybe and the Gravy. It's about a young girl who doesn't like gravy. How can you not like gravy? Unless she's a vegetarian. Yeah, that's that's kind of the thing. They don't get into that. But even even then, you could have like vegetarian gravy. It turns into more uh, gravy. Seems to be chosen because it rhymes with maybe. It turns into more of a book about how she uh, uh, learns to try new things and even embrace change when a friend of hers moves away. Spoilers. Mm, that's nice. Uh, thank you for sending us uh, the book, Alan. It looks like it's due out soon. We also, you're going to be very excited about this, John. You got a note from what? This says the Kentucky Colonels in Louisville. What? Louisville. What? 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 If what? you if your note is anything like mine, well, it, first of all, you'll get a welcome, Colonel. This is addressed package. to Colonel John Roderick. Was yours addressed to Colonel Ken Jennings? That's true. It comes with this little certificate with a gold stamp telling me that I now hold the highest civilian honor the governor of the Commonwealth of Kentucky can bestow, the title no, no, of no. Kentucky Colonel. No, no, no. Really, really, really? And there's a what? membership card. What, what, what? Oh, no. Are you kidding me? Wow. Oh, I'm so excited. It appears to be a nonprofit. Um, the executive director, Colonel Sherry Cross, notes that they do good work supporting worthy Kentucky organizations. <gasps> this this bond, this paper bond, has these little, like, rivets on the edges. Oh, you're right. It's so fantastic. Well, they didn't spare any expense. And it's got a membership card. But it looks like the idea is that you um, you choose at which level you would like to support. Be, we, be, be a Kentucky we, colonel? We've been patroned by the state of Kentucky. Um, wow. Wow. You know, I've been seeking out being a Kentucky colonel for many, many years. And it turns out all you had to do was write a check. Well, we didn't write a check. Well, we got signed up, but that's how they get you, I think. Oh, I see. I see. And uh, if you give more than $100 this year to the Kentucky Colonel's Good Works Program, your name will feature in the annual Colonels of Distinction Contributors Report. Now, I don't know if you're going to do this, but I definitely am. We love the CODCR, don't we, folks? Yes, we do. 
I, I feel like I'm going to donate because they sent me all this stuff. Are you going to buy merch? There's a there's a Kentucky Colonel's Nike hat. No kidding. There's a Kentucky Colonel's campfire coffee mug. I mean, I'm not even embarrassed how much this kind of thing just delights me to no end. And I maybe I should be embarrassed. Maybe I should be one of those people that doesn't care about things in the material world and just sits on a on a toadstool and 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 enjoys uh, the, the smell of the fresh pines. It's not clear whether somebody signed us up or if the organization itself somehow became aware of your love for the Kentucky Colonel. Became, became sentient itself. Do <laughs> I want, I mean, what you get here, you get, you can get a, uh, like a license plate for your front, your front license plate that says honorable order of the Kentucky Colonels. I think that might be misunderstood out here. <laughs> you know what I mean? It could be, it could be confusing. Yeah, Kentucky has had many colonels in the in the United States Army. Yes, but it yes. probably had some colonels in some other armies I over so. the years. I believe so. Uh, you can get a challenge coin. You can get a, a, a whoa a ten carat gold ring only costs twelve hundred and fifty dollars. This so is, you'd have to really be into uh, it. There. Does it cheapen the honor for you at all now, knowing that um, really at any point you could have just got this catalog in the mail and. It's not actually an elite group of anything? No, I don't believe that's true. I don't think you get this catalog. Um, I think you have to probably, sub- you have to add your number, right? You've got your certificate number right here. I mean, what's, what's? I don't want to tell people my number because they could go get, they could go get. Um, Governor. Merch in my, in my name. Governor Andy Bashir thanks us for um, stepping up to serve the Commonwealth once again. So there's a it's, list it's, of 2020 grantees, which we're not on, but I bet we're on the 2021 list. Well, if we if we make a list, if we make a donation, we will be. It's interesting that uh, the governor of Bashir, through a bizarre series of political shenanigans, is currently a Democrat. So it's actually uh, hip hip hooray! It's actually Governor Bashir welcoming us to the Kentucky Colonels. That that's that nice. Pro- probably hasn't happened a lot in the last 50 years. I mean, that makes that makes it that makes the honor feel more. Uh, more so you, palatable, so you are right? going to get the license plates around well there's a there's a lapel pin which is very cool that i might that i might put on my king neptune outfit um so how do you feel about it i mean i'm i'm thrilled i'm i'm still bewildered i wish there was i wish we had found out who in the state of kentucky had decided to enroll us so we could so we could thank them and find out more about that process i mean the only thing that kind of diminishes this uh, honor is that you received it too <laughs> but but I suppose you know I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, I, but, no, but in think, reverse, I think you know you probably have at least as much call, uh, cause to be uh, benighted, a Kentucky colonel, maybe not benighted. I've been to Kentucky, I've right? Been to Kentucky a couple times, but you you've brought joy to the people of Kentucky, uh, almost certainly. Yeah, perhaps also some heartbreak. We don't know. Hard, hard to measure. Think about all the people that have watched you on television and dreamt of your sweet kisses, who will who will go unkissed. But how many of them were rooting for someone else? Maybe Kentucky is a hotbed of uh, James Holtzauer fans. Maybe there's a little place called Holtzauer Holler where, where people hate me. We don't know. <laughs> Almost certainly. Uh, if you are responsible for our joining the Kentucky Colonels, first, thank you. Second, please, please let us know. Um, take credit for your achievement. Um, email us at the omnibus project at uh, gmail.com. Uh, you can also find your fellow listeners in this era or presumably any other uh, by looking for the Futurelings on Facebook or maybe Discord. There's a subreddit, I think. Uh, it's a good time. Futurelings, from our vantage point, 
in your distant past when the state of Kentucky still existed because the United States of America still existed. We have no idea how long this bankrupt civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.